Hello, and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Elas. Our topic today is Iran and what we can expect moving forward under the country's new president-elect, Ibrahim Raisi. With us today is Arash Azizi. He's a writer and scholar based at New York University. He's the author of The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, The U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. He's also the author of a recent article in New Lines magazine titled, How Iran's Hanging Judge Became President. With us also is Cameron Kanyasirnia. He studied government at Harvard and is currently the policy director for the Washington-based National Union for Democracy in Iran, a nonprofit organization based in Washington, DC, focusing on promoting democracy and human rights inside Iran. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. Let us start with who is Ibrahim Raisi? Well, uh, Arash, you, you just wrote a piece on this, so I think I should let you have the first step. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, Ibrahim Raisi is distinguished um, by the fact that he's spent his entire life in the Iranian judiciary since he was a young man at the time of the revolution. He joins the judiciary. Um, the Iranian judiciary had to be built up in the 1980s after the regime was founded with a lot of brutality, frankly, uh, because it, it was a new regime uh, which established itself by a running societal terror, really. Um, you could go to jail for the most basic things like owning a VCR or wearing a T-shirt in the 1980s. Um, uh, and he's spent his entire life in this in this uh, system, and of course, many people were executed. Many of them helped by him, particularly uh, throughout uh, in 1988, uh, in an event that is known as a crime against humanity in Iranian history. But long story short, Abraham Raisi is important uh, because he he is picked uh, to be president, effectively in the first truly uncompetitive election uh, Iran has held since mid 1990s. Elections have, of course, never been free and fair, but but there, uh, you know, there have been reasonably competitive at times. But this one was uncompetitive. He was pushed to power uh, because of two factors. First, because he's a the ultimate insider and the ultimate yes man. And the second that is related to this was that he is someone who, even within the conservatives, Khamenei can make sure won't become a rival because he's to put it, you know, as respectfully as possible. He's he's not all that impressive. He's not charismatic. He certainly doesn't have rhetorical skills. He doesn't seem to be very super knowledgeable about the world. He is a ultimate bureaucratic yes man that can help the regime consolidate um, power in the hands of conservatives without becoming a serious rival uh, to Khamenei. I, I, I think, Rush, if, if I can just add, I, I think that uh, yeah, a lot of what a lot of what Arash said is correct. I may differ on, on some of the details, um, but I just want to dig a bit deeper, and I'm sure throughout this podcast we'll go more into this. But Arash talks about the bloody early years of the Islamic Revolution uh, and the Islamic Republic in Iran uh, once it seized power. Uh, and, and, and Ebrahim Raisi played a critical role in that. You know, it, it's as, as someone who advocates uh, a secular democracy in Iran, it's, it's my opinion uh, that based on what the people on the streets of Iran say, for example, one of the most popular chants, uh, reformist hardliners, the game is over, you're all the same to us, um, the game is up, uh, that the, the particular actors on the stage in the Islamic Republic 
all bear some degree of responsibility for staying a part of a system that has committed so many crimes against humanity, has committed so many murders, has uh, had one you know massacre after slaughter, uh, after killing, after another, that they all bear some degree of responsibility for this. Ebrahim Raisi, however, is not just your average participant on the political stage in the Islamic Republic. I mean, he played a hands-on role. He was, as we would say, you know, in the mud, uh, in the trenches of the Islamic Republic's war against the people of Iran, especially in those early years. You know, and one of his leading roles in the death commission. When we talk about death commissions, just to give you a very small amount of context, these were you know seconds, minutes long kangaroo trials in which political dissidents were asked one to two questions. Do you still believe in X ideology? Are you still uh, a holder of, of Y belief? Do you still think that Z is the truth? And if the answer was not what uh, Mr. Raisi or his revolutionary colleagues were looking for, you were sent to one room and you were hung or you were shot. You, you, I mean, that's 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 the role that he played. Uh, we, we In the past week since this selection, not election, but selection of Ibrahim Raisi, uh, victims and the families of victims have come out in, in, in really unimaginable interviews and given testimony of of the rapes that of political prisoners that Ibrahim Raisi ordered and actually watched as they happened. Uh, there are accounts of, of in front of Ibrahim Raisi, prison guards throwing newborn babies against the ground and him, him standing there watching. So this is the person we're talking about, just to give context to that. I think it's important when we talk about this man. This is the type of man that we're talking about. And as we look forward, uh, back to Arash's point, um, it's not just about selecting him, but it's about what that means going forward. And I think we're, we're, we're sort of coming to a new phase uh, yeah, four actually, decades yeah, into me, these. Me, Cameron, I'm sorry, let me just interject here, because we're going to talk about what the, what his election means for Iran domestically. So let's just move on to this point, actually. And I want to hear from Arash. What do you, uh, you know, what do you see? What does it mean? What does his election mean for Iran domestically and for the reformists and for the Iranian people? And then we'll come back to you, Cameron, for you to add to that point. So the reformist movement um, that had its heyday in the election of President Khatami in 1997 included many of people who had served the regime in different capacities, but who had genuinely come to the conclusion that Iran needed to be democratized to two different degrees. Now, the degrees really mattered, right? Um, but there were many in the reformist movement who had serious democratizing um, and platforms. And in the last election, Mustafa Tajzad, a deputy, uh, a former deputy interior minister who ran, basically ran on a much more democratizing platform than anyone else. Uh, he advocated the abolition of the Supreme Leader. Now, the so the reformist movement, um, you know, it, it needs a program of its own to talk about it. But let me just say, Said Hanjarian, who is the who is known as the main theoretical brain of the reformist movement, said a couple of days ago on Twitter that the reformist movement was dead. This is, a, this is as big of an uh, admission as, as, as you can have. Now, Hajarian is someone who had famously, then in 2005, a lot of people said the reformist movement is dead after the reformist candidate lost to Ahmadinejad in the first elections, um, in his in Ahmadinejad's first election. Um, Hajarian back then had said the reformist movement is dead, long live reformism. This time, um, you know, basically he paraphrasing Karl Marx, he wanted to say that the reformist movement should be back. This time, someone like Hajarian himself um, has, has really realized um, that the, the project that is in. Let me just say this. Eight years ago, Muhammad Khatami um, called for a vote and endorsed Hassan Rouhani. And that basically became 
Rouhani's election. Rouhani was elected, Rouhani, who is himself not a reformist, was elected in 2013 largely because Khatami and the leaders of the reformist movement stood behind him. This time around, Khatami did stand behind the centrist candidate, Abdul Nasser Hemati, but it did, not, it did not translate to a vote for him. So it shows really um, where their sort of reformist movement is. And of course, in politics, you can die and you can come back to life again and you know, you can, you know, different things can happen. But the reality is the reformist movement has 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 been seen a total dead end. It doesn't control any institution. It does not have popularity on the street. And it needs to do some serious source searching and see what it can sort of do for the future. As for what it means for Iran and domestically, effectively, so we have to see, of course, what Raisi will do. But my suspicion is that now that the conservatives are going to dominate the Iranian sort of political system, you won't see immediately a lot of uh, sort of immediate changes necessarily. Um, part of this is because, frankly, Iran is as repressive as it could get. It's in worse economic shape it's, it's ever been. It's, it's hard to imagine how things could get worse. So I don't think you will see that. And I will, the last thing I'll say is that um, Raisi, uh, you know, might try to, it, it, you might see some economic alleviation, some economic improvement, especially if, if, if a deal is made uh, in, in Vienna. Um, and Raisi might try to do this and try to not immediately sort of pick up a fight with people and try to sort of, uh, you know, oversee a, a slight uh, amelioration of the of the economic conditions um, and, and might pick a cabinet that is not, um, you know, as hardliner as, as it could be or as himself. So these are, these are all some possibilities, but, you know, we of course have to uh, wait and see. Okay. Um, thank you. Cameron, you described in vivid detail the brutality of Ibrahim Raisi and the reaction, the visceral reaction of the people to his election. How do you see this moving forward? I mean, this seems to be, uh, is this the beginning of a domestic crisis or is this just more of the same? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. It, it, it is the beginning of, uh, of, or perhaps the beginning of a new phase of what I would, what I believe has been an ongoing crisis for the Islamic Republic. Um, and it's also more the same until we reach uh, that tipping point, which I believe will be the collapse of the Islamic Republic. Now, I, I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't think it's wise to predict when um, totalitarian regimes will fall, but we, we do know that they almost always do at some point. And I think that this is, is likely an event that will hasten that ultimate fall. Um, as was said, the reform movement is dead. Uh, it's 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 been on life support for some time, um, but just to give a, a very brief overview of of what happened in this quote unquote election, what's more of a selection process. Um, almost any observer of, of Iran knows that before you even get to the actual quote unquote voting or the quote unquote election phase, uh, the Guardian Council uh, vets candidates. This this time uh, they disqualified uh, more than 99 percent of candidates who submitted their name uh, to run. Um, including and the, Guardian, uh, the Guardian Council, just to define it, is a 12 member uh, council, six of which are directly appointed by the Supreme Leader himself. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, and, and, and so they, they disqualified, you know, the vast majority, 99% of these candidates, including, um, you know, really uh, top level regime insiders, including close aides to the Supreme Leader himself. Um, and not only because of that, but because I would argue of what has been a, a roughly three to four year growing movement against the Islamic Republic. This this really started um, at Pasargad, which is uh, sort of an ancient capital of ancient Persia, uh, where you saw 
what I can only describe as, as, as a small-scale rebellion um, of young Iranians against the Islamic Republic. There you saw chants uh, calling uh, for Cyrus the Great, Kurush Kabir, as we would say in Persian, um, uh, said, you know, Cyrus is, is our father, Iran is our, our motherland. So really strong nationalistic rebellion there. Uh, and that set the stage for uh, the themes that you saw in the 2017, 18, and 19 protests, which were really nationwide, they didn't have the the volume that you saw in the 2009 Green Revolution protests, um, but they were much more widespread. They were not concentrated in the capital, Tehran. Uh, they were in cities and towns and villages across Iran, and they were explicitly calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. Uh, they were extremely radical. They called for the death of the Supreme Leader, the removal of the regime. Uh, many called for a return of the monarchy. Many chanted for Reza Pahlavi. Many chanted for other forms of government. But the common theme was they were radically against the Islamic Republic. And so uh, that is the dominant uh, strand, I would say, now what we would call parandos or overthrowers. Uh, that's a much more uh, a powerful political force than the reformists. What it lacks um, is strategic direction from a unified opposition, which I think we can you know, perhaps get into. And, and that may be something that you see more and more of coming forward. But inside the country, uh, it, it's much less about the fighting between the political factions that we used to see um, and much more now between those who want a continuation of the regime and those who want a removal of the regime. And I think that just the last point on this, what, what Raisi portends for the future and his selection by Khamenei, partially as, as Arash said, is a new phase for the Islamic Republic. I think that Khamenei realizes a lot of these changes are happening. He's an old man. He's a sick man. He's not going to be around forever. And there's potential that, that you see a real tightening of, of, of the grip of the Islamic Republic on Iranian society. Um, and, you, and you almost have them having no bones about getting rid of the word republic from the term Islamic Republic and, and really turning it into more of an Islamic caliphate. I mean, Iranians on the streets already say in their protest chants that, you know, IRGC regime, you are our ISIS. But I think I think there's potential with their ISIS selection to see that uh, in, in really true form uh, as long as this regime is in power. Okay. Yeah, this is a good time, I think, to ask both of you about uh, coverage of Iran, coverage of this uh, election or selection, as Cameron put it. Uh, it seems to me that Iran is one of the more, if not the most, isolated countries uh, in the Middle East. It's really difficult to get the inside story out. It's very difficult for international journalists to, you know, go in there and, and get the real story. Uh, what what would you say, um, you know, how would you rate the international coverage on recently with this latest development and up until now? Uh, we can start uh, with, uh, with Arash. Given the large number of people who write about Iran, a large number of Iranians were there, and yes, it's harder for, for uh, Western journalists to go, but Iranians are so sort of tech savvy, and, and, you know, if you look at, you know, there are so many. Persian language broadcasters based abroad who get daily, basically, videos sent from Iran. Um, so, you know, there is actually a lot of uh, sort of coverage of Iran out there if you compare it to many other countries. I think I don't think you have a problem of uh, sort of not enough coverage. I think that the problem with Iran is that it's, of course, a complex place, um, and like many other places, but I think there is a particular malaise uh, with Iran, and that's that Look, I have, I'm an Iranian, you know, I, I'm an Iranian socialist. I have my own politics in Iran and I have, you know, I have taken different political decisions throughout my life like many others. 
Um, but I try to, you know, when you ask me a question uh, about Iran, or when I want to sort of talk about Iran to a, to a foreign audience, um, I try to state the, the facts as they are and the reality as they are. Unfortunately, it's very common uh, for people who speak on Iran or Iran experts who want to push a particular point to basically not do that. Um, we, it is fine. In politics, we all do that, right? It's part of political um, sort of a speech in which you emphasize certain points um, in, in, in uh, sort of in lieu of others. But I think in Iran, it's gotten to a point where it is political interest of, uh, you know, of either side. Now, either you are super uh, pro-overthrowing the regime or you're super pro-diplomacy um, with Iran or you are, you know, outright trying to legitimize sort of the regime in some nefarious ways. Um, you know, uh, this means... All of these directions can lead people into basically speaking about Iran without without all the facts and without um, you know ignoring a part of reality. So I think this this as a result, people have an ideologized version of Iran that is really unhelpful. And I think that's uh, that that's really common in America. And that's that's the particular malaise um, you know of of understanding Iran. Um, you know the, the different factions uh, in the regime, for example. I mean, if you say there are different factions and they have different interests, um, you know, you can have whatever opinion you want to have about them, but you can't say they're all the same, which which people do all the time. Or to pretend, basically, um, you know, to pretend that you know, when you read some coverage of Iran, you think all the Ayatollahs and all the hardliners are just one step away from becoming, you know, uh, liberals, <laughs> which is of course not true. Um, but you know they want to sort of prove this point, and then they're and this is of course involved in particular political fights in the United States around the Trump administration, around identity politics issues in the United States. So I think that's what really hurts uh, the coverage of Iran in the United States, which of course, let's be honest, drives the coverage around the world because of the weight that the United States has in the world. Uh, Cameron, do you think the international media has been getting the story in full? Have they been getting it right or wrong? Tell us. I, I think that they have not been getting it in full and, and they've been getting it uh, wrong in, in almost every aspect. Um, of, of course, Arish is right. We have to look uh, at things with nuance. Um, that's that's our responsibility as, as responsible and, and reasonable analysts, watchers, whatever we want to call ourselves. I, I personally uh, do have an agenda as, as, as you know, an Iranian-American organization uh, that uh, tries to reflect the desires of, of our fellow Iranians inside the country who are so often um, unable to express uh, their wishes. We clearly uh, reflect their desire for, for freedom and for secular democracy. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, I put an analyst hat on and say that tomorrow uh, the regime will collapse, even though I very much uh, hope that that it would. Um, we have to be we have to be responsible and we have to look at the facts as they are, uh, not as, as we wish they were. And that's where the media gets Iran so wrong. Uh, I mean, Arash said this point uh, and it's true. There are Iranian channels abroad, many based in London, uh, privately owned, not run by governments. And, and even there are some run by governments, the BBC Persian, the VOA uh, Persian. Um, and they receive films from inside Iran. They receive commentary from regular Iranian citizens. You know, these are not D.C. based activists or advocates who look at some issue one way or the other. They're people who live inside the country uh, and they deal with this regime and they suffer from this regime every day. 
and their voices are almost never reflected in the international media. Um, so much of Iran uh, journalism, unfortunately, is is what I would consider access journalism. So you have some correspondent at some network uh, or some print media outlet that has a relationship and has been able to to gain access to officials within the Islamic Republic. They tend to be on this this, this reformist part of the spectrum that we talked about, and so. When they hear from that reformist person uh, on the record, off the record, say something that is slightly critical, let's say, of the supreme leader, they tend to embolden that and, and, and make Iran out to be uh, this dynamic political scene where there's actual democracy. And of course, Arash is right that I'm not making the argument that people within this spectrum don't have agency and they don't have some slightly varying opinions. They do, obviously, they're, they're humans. But my point in, in, in grouping them together is that they are they agree on the most important thing, the only thing that matters, and that is the continuation of the Islamic Republic, a brutal, oppressive dictatorship, as opposed to thinking about an alternative, thinking about the new uh, system that could come after. Um, so, so because so much of Iran journalism is access journalism, it gets so many things wrong. I, I think those of us who watch Iran closely and those who, who are in touch people inside the country and see what we see on the on these Persian language broadcast media, we talk to our friends and family inside the country, it's almost as if there are two Irans. You know, there's one that those of us who, who speak the language and see inside the country that we see, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a population that is what I would describe as, as, as overtly and, and in, in its majority against the regime. And then you, there's something you see in the international media where maybe you'll see, you know, uh, videos of beautiful snow falling in Tehran and a beautiful mall. And, and that's, that's the image the regime wants you to see. So unfortunately, aside from outlets, you know, for example, New Lines does a great job. There are places like Tehran Bureau, Kehan, uh, London, that, that show what's actually happening inside the country. So much of what we see, especially in leading outlets, CNN, The New York Times, foreign policy. I mean, it's it's so wrong, and, it, and it, it's it's unfortunate. I don't know if it's a, it's if it's because there are agendas, or if it or if it's a naivete. And, and I can get into this more in my next answer. But it's it's often so wrong. Yeah, I, I have to say I don't agree with that. Really. I mean, I, I think that's unfair. Uh, you know, and it's, it's sort of it's a very sweeping thing to say. Um, all the outlets that Kamran named, any one of your viewers can go and read their work on Iran and see, uh, you know, um, and judge for themselves. I think you know. Um, this wholesale condemnation of our colleagues in the media um, when it comes to Iran and sort of these sweeping claims about them, I don't think are supported by facts. Uh, you know, so, I have so my own me... critics, and I try to say, but I, I, I really don't think um, I don't I don't really think they are supported by facts. So, okay, so we'll Russia, hear, let, let we'll me just say, just, just, just. We'll hear one, we'll hear one last comment from you, Cameron, and then. Yeah, just on. super quick, and and. Absolutely, and 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 this example to support my my statement. The aftermath of the selection of Raisi, I think, gives you an example of, of what I'm talking about. You have headlines from analysts or commentators in big name publications, for example, Foreign Policy, saying Ibrahim Raisi is not the man you think he is. Or in The New York Times saying um, the selection of Raisi may give a great opportunity to the Biden administration uh, to uh, to sort of reestablish oh, the JCPOA. Uh, uh, well, actually, the, the piece I'm referring to, the Times, is, is not an opinion piece. It was it was run as a news piece. Um, or, for example, in CNN, where you say um, that it's because of Trump that the reformist project in Iran failed. That's not true. The reason reform in Iran failed was because reformists were never able to deliver for the people of Iran. So not everything that's written about Iran is bad. It's just my opinion that the vast majority 
is bad because it's disconnected from the average Iranian. Even if they do oftentimes have connections to Iran, it's from a particular social strata uh, oftentimes in the north part of Tehran, uh, where things are, are generally much better off than the south of Tehran or, or in small cities around the country. So uh, it, it's generally a misrepresentative uh, of what's actually happening. If you actually see actual Iranians, they are by and large so frustrated, so angry, and they don't look to some reformists to solve their problems. They look to opposition. They look to themselves as an alternative. Um, and that's just not reflected uh, in the mass media. Again, not always, but but most often. Okay. Uh, very interesting conversation, and it sounds like it, it warrants its own episode. So we're going to move on for now uh, to talk about regional implications of the RICE uh, coming, you know, coming on the scene. So uh, RICE has made statements about um, potentially a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia. Um, of course, it's, it takes two to tango, and we won't be talking about Saudi Arabia in this episode. But let's hear your thoughts, both of you, on Iran's relationship with Saudi Arabia moving forward under RICE. What can we expect, do you think, not just with that, but in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, and uh, regionally in general? Um, I think um, the, the truth is the foreign policy of Iran and the sort of security policy of Iran were not run by Raisi, as is well known. Um, Jawad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, gave a you know, the leaked, uh, the leaked uh, voice file of him that I, I had the opportunity to write about for, for New Lines, said basically very clearly that he, as a foreign minister, wasn't even made aware of a lot of these policies, let alone controlling them. So there is a, there is a question of continuity, and the, um, and the fact of the matter is already Rouhani administration had, um, Rouhani administration, Zarif and them, effectively used by the Supreme Leader when he needed them for negotiations uh, with the West, but they had very little sort of autonomous decision-making role in the foreign policy. So, um, so Raisi's uh, election in this way is more like an operational change. Um, inside um, inside the regime. And it's very clear that those centrists like Rohan and Zarif will continue to serve the regime when asked and in whatever capacity asked. I think um, I think that much is clear. Now, on, on the particular question that you asked, two quick and brief answers. On Saudi Arabia, of course, we had the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, give an interview a while back and basically asking for de-escalation with Iran. I think it's in there, where it's, it's in the regional interest it's in the interest of both countries. Um, and I think, yes, it is possible that you will see uh, de-escalation, probably establishment of diplomatic ties, um, you know, like you had them before in the 90s. Uh, they, will, they will probably, it is possible and probable that they'll move uh, towards something of the sort. Now, as for Iran's destructive policies in the region and its backing for um, different militias in different countries, it will continue it. Um, it will continue to do it in Lebanon, it will continue to do it in Iraq, in Yemen it will continue to do it, and that will become a problem in this relationship with Saudi Arabia, but they may be able to reach some sort of a negotiation and to the civil war in Yemen, in which the Houthis, the Iranian uh, proxies are supported by Iran, will be able to get sort of, you know, some share in power, uh, but it will continue. The, the, the reality is, the Iranian regime, and Khamenei personally, try on keeping the region unsafe, and are keeping it uh, divided, and are um, preventing basically for formation of a strong sovereign states in Iraq and Lebanon, and will continue this policy. Um, um, and 
you know, it's very unlikely for this to change unless you have some big change in Iran. I think that's very important because uh, it really, it reminds us how the Iranian regime, it really is a menace, not just to the Iranian people, but to people in the region because it has a, a structural interest in keeping the region, as I said, uh, unsafe and full of conflict. Um, and I think, uh, I'll just end with saying this, that there's a lot of talk about Iran's behavior in the region. I think it's important for the United States, um, for the Biden administration, um, uh, you know, and, and for the West in general to, to counter Iranian uh, behavior by supporting these countries. Uh, it, it's much more, uh, you know, it's, it's a much more sure way of getting this done than even negotiations with Iran on this matter, i.e. giving political and economic support to the Mustafa Kazemi's government in, in Iraq and, and trying to find a path in, in Lebanon to a, um, to a solution to the political crisis there and, and marginalization, relative marginalization as much as possible of Hezbollah and groups supported by Iran. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, Arash. Cameron, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you think the domestic situation or the pulse the basically the you know the reaction of people inside Iran to Raisi, for example, how that may or may not affect uh, Iran's foreign policy in the region. Are people growing? You know, how tired are the Iranian people of their government supporting Syria, for example, and Lebanon and Yemen, or are they? Is it is it an issue of contention? Is it on their mind, first and foremost, or not? Tell us. What you think. It's 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 definitely on their mind, and, and just to, when we say reaction to to the selection of, of Raisi, you know, just just a quick overview: um, the vast majority of those eligible uh, to vote in this uh, this this sham election uh, did not vote. Uh, so, by and large, people did not partake in this in this election, and, and that's an important point in and of itself because there was there from, was a boycott of the election. Exactly. There was a massive boycott, uh, probably somewhere around the around the the, the regime announced 48 percent. It's it's probably half of that, uh, if not lower, that actually participated in the election. Um, and that's important because not only the person, the supreme leader, but these, quote unquote, reformists like Javad Zarif and others uh, in the domestic media and in the international media. Um, of course, the supreme leader doesn't doesn't give interviews to, to anyone, let alone the international media. But they all said that every vote for this uh, for for any candidate candidate in this election is a vote for the regime. So the fact that the Iranian people boycotted it on a historic level shows what the Iranian people think of the regime overall, and they no longer view it as legitimate. And in the actual votes cast after Raisi, who was reportedly number one, the, the second most number of ballots cast were void or null ballots. There, there are people who are forced, of course, to vote in a totalitarian, a totalitarian state like the Islamic Republic. They work for the state, they work for universities, they work for the military, and therefore they're forced to go to the polls. So many people cast null, null ballots. So that shows you a bit what uh, the Iranian people think of this uh, Islamic Republic. Um, as, as to how that relates to foreign policy, Arash is, of course, right that the president and the cabinet um, does not control foreign policy. That, that's, again, controlled by the person of the supreme leader. Um, and let's just be very clear when we talk about, quote unquote, Iran's policies in the region. I mean, let, let's let's not play games. It's, it's about, you know, similar to describing Raisi. Let's be very clear. Uh, the Islamic Republic's policy, for example, in Syria 
is to slaughter Syrian children. It is to give weapons, uh, uh, conventional and chemical, uh, to Bashar Assad uh, to, to kill Syrian men, women, and children. Uh, it is to sow discord uh, via Hezbollah in Lebanon. It is to sow discord uh, and to assassinate uh, critics uh, and dissidents uh, via uh, terror groups and proxies in Iraq. Um, it's to sow discord in Yemen. So that, that's their policy. It's a fundamentally um, inhuman and unjustifiable policy. As to what the Iranian people think about it, we don't have to guess. Uh, I mean, the Iranian people in their protests against the Islamic Republic actually quite clearly uh, chant these things. One of, one of the common chants, again, you hear um, is, is leave Gaza, leave Syria, think of us. Um, or, you know, neither Gaza n- nor Lebanon, my life will be only given for Iran. Um, you know, I don't want my money sent to Palestine. I want it spent on me and my children. So, so these are some of the chants that, that we hear. Of course, they're much more eloquent and, and they rhyme in Persian. Um, but the, these are the things you hear on the streets of, of Tehran, of Mashhad, of Karaj, of Esfahan when there are protests. And again, big cities and small cities. So the Iranian people are very clear that if they had their way, if they were the actual sovereigns of, of a state and it was a responsible government to their interests and needs, that Iran would not be playing the destructive role uh, that it has played in the region for several decades uh, and that it would play a much more productive role in perhaps being part of some regional peace um, that we could actually see as being beneficial to everyone in this region. And, and the very last point on this is it's important to recognize that what the Islamic Republic does in the region, uh, for example, its, its support of terrorism or its propping up of brutal dictators like Bashar Assad, those are not tactical decisions. You know, it's not, it, it's not part of, for example, some grand strategy. The Islamic Republic, much more than it is a nation state, is an ideology. It is a cause. It is still, after 42 years, still calls itself revolutionary. It has revolutionary courts, revolutionary guard. Um, and it is part of the regime's identity, DNA, and founding documents to, ha- to have what we call sudura engalab, the exports of the revolution. So they, they view themselves not only as the rightful rulers of Iran, of the Melat or the nation, but of the Ummat, the Islamic uh, 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 population, the Islamic world. And so uh, their objective is to extend their control beyond Iran's borders, whether officially or unofficially. So uh, these behaviors will continue as long as this regime is in power. The JCPOA won't stop it. No negotiations will stop it. Uh, this is part and parcel of the existence of the Islamic Republic. Uh, thank you, Cameron. I'd like to hear one more point from you, and that is, do you think the pressure, the domestic pressure internally uh, that sounds to be you know, growing or is, has already reached a, a boiling point or maybe not, I don't know, uh, but do you think this will cause any change whatsoever in Iran's foreign policy moving forward? I mean, I hear, for example, what I perceive as a uh, as a reaction to this internal pressure, I've seen public statements coming out of um, from Iranian officials in in Farsi claiming that uh, the Islamic Republic actually reaps a lot of uh, financial benefit in return. Uh, for um, supporting the Assad regime, for example, because domestically there's the idea that money is going out uh, and nothing is coming in. And so, you know, the Iranian people are supporting uh, this foreign policy that means nothing to them uh, at their own expense, and they're just suffering for it. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, you know, so it's interesting to me that the, some Iranian officials are sort of responding to that, whether or not it's true. I mean, I don't think Iran is getting paid by... <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
but yeah, tell me. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a fascinating question, and, and I'm so glad that that you asked this because it, it's um it's part of a broader um actually strategy which has been so effective by the Islamic Republic. You know, for example, in the lead up to these selections, I, I would discuss with um, Syrian friends or or others, and they say, you know, look at these elections in the Islamic Republic. They're you know they're real elections. You know, when when Bashar Assad is is reelected, it's 95 percent of the vote. These are like you know Saddam Hussein you know style elections. You know, everyone knows they're fake they're laughable but in iran there's real competition in my view that's because the islamic republic was much more crafty and much more thoughtful in in designing its dictatorship than was saddam hussein than was bashar assad who simply don't care uh what the world thinks you know they they are maintaining power by brute force and they did in saddam's uh, case and and assad in his case through brute force the iranian uh islamic republic uh, is attempting to to maintain power through some maintenance of international legitimacy on the world stage, although it's an outlaw regime, although Iranians view it as an ISIS-like entity, it, it maintains UN recognition, it maintains international legitimacy, it's, its diplomats, quote-unquote diplomats, are hosted you know, uh, in the halls of Vienna and Geneva and New York um, uh, because they've been able to play this very well. And, and, and so to your specific question, they're able to have these sort of release valves or they at least have been able to, so they can send a member of parliament onto the state propaganda service and say, look, people, you know, this, these billions that we're spending to, to kill Syrian children, you know, this has a benefit for Iran. Um, and so they were able to sort of play these different factions off one another and, and deploy them when necessary uh, to quell some unrest. And I think for a long time that worked. Um, but I think now what you see is that that will no longer work. Um, the Iranian people no longer take anything that this regime says, whether it's from a quote-unquote reformist, whether it's from Khamenei, with anyone, as being true. They know that for 40 years they've been, you know, just blatantly lied to and taken advantage of and really taken out for a ride. And that's why what you see most broadly now uh, is is this no to the Islamic Republic campaign, which, you know, it's very broad. And, and it's very simple that, no, we don't take we don't we don't want this regime. We don't take what it offers at face value. And so I think that these these you know comments by members of, for example, the Majlis or, or others that they refer to, they worked for a long time and they did attempt to sort of respond to some public uh, criticisms or problems, I don't think you'll see that as being effective anymore. People no longer accept, you know, this regime in any way, shape or form. Not all of them. Of course, there are still those who do support this regime. Maybe it's 15, 20, 25 percent, but the vast majority do not. So, Arash, what about you? Do you think uh, there's we've reached a, a tipping point of sorts in Iran um, in terms of the Iranian regime just going ahead unabated with its own agenda, whether it's its own foreign policy or domestically, um, and, and not responding to domestic pressure either way. Do you think, uh, do you think it's going to be different from this point forward? The, the Iranian regime um, has had many ups and downs. Now, Kamran spoke of, of a crisis, and it's it's interesting because really this regime has almost been in a crisis since 1979 to this day. And uh, you know it, the word crisis becomes becomes interesting because some some regimes have the ability to maintain a crisis for many years. Of course, it hasn't always been uh, you know this bad, um, and it has had ups and downs. And how it has, and that's how it's been able to survive. Uh, look, I think I think the fun there are some fundamental points here. Um, 
one of it is that Iranian foreign policy, the Iran's foreign policy, and some basic natures of the Iranian regime are really not supported by the Iranian people. And I say this, you know, if I was an advisor to Khamenei, I'd say the same thing. It's a objective, really, observation. Um, the Iranians are not supporting this regime. They're not supporting its foreign policy. And even people who are serving this regime have seen its failure. It has not made Iran more Islamic. It has not made Iran more moral. It has not made Iran prosper. To the contrary, it has led to a huge brain drain. It has, it has led to, I mean, not even just brain drain, it has just led to uh, just many people leaving the country. It has led to huge incompetence on, any level, on, on many levels. So, it, you, know, it does, um, you know, it does have some fundamental problems. They, in my opinion, the main uh, secret, the main secret to its success, i.e. its continuation by success, I just mean the main secret to its survival, is the lack of an alternative, basically, the lack of a good alternative, i.e. the opposition that has always been uh, strategically inept, um, uh, disunited, um, and disconnected from, uh, you know, from sort of political trends inside the country. So uh, so here's what I think. Khamenei is 82. He's going to die at some point. Uh, there would be a succession crisis. And there are a number of uh, futures that are, that are possible for Iran. Um, the IRGC, the militia that we didn't speak as much about today, but of course it's very important, has a chance of uh, of basically overcoming and becoming a sort of powerful force, uh, much more powerful force than it is, um, dominating power in Iran, basically using the next supreme leader as sort of a weak leader that it can have all the real power and will make Iran into a military dictatorship, uh, which uh, which has its own logics um, and can lead to uh, can lead to its own future. Now, as it comes to the average Iranians, Iranian progressives, I share what Kamran said uh, earlier, and that uh, we need the opposition needs a strategic direction and it needs unity. Um, both inside Iran and outside Iran, there are many Iranians. I mean, those of us who are outside, obviously, with much less risk. There are many brave Iranians who risk their life and. Um, and come out against the regime. Now we all differ on on many different things. We we differ on um, you know on how religious we are, or we are from religious minorities in Iran. We differ on how we've reacted to different factions of the regime uh, in the past, whether we voted in these elections or not. We differ on um, you know whether we are nationalist or or socialist or Islamist. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean not not really Islamists are not really part of the opposition, but those who let's say have have a past and in, in uh, Muslim sort of progressive movements or, or different kinds. My point is there are, there's there's much diversity. Um, and the, the job of the opposition, the, the uphill battle of the opposition would be able, is to be able to put them together, offer a united opposition that, um, that really puts aside all differences except for opposition to dictatorship and for a positive platform of free uh, secular democracy in Iran, free elections in Iran, and a and 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 the end of the sort of supreme leader. Um, this, you know, it would be a very tough battle ahead, fighting with a regime that has uh, so much brutality and so much power. But uh, I think now that the, all the factions of the regime in Iran are united and ha you know around the conservatives, um, it, it was time for the Iranian opposition as well uh, to to unite and offer a united front and a serious democratic alternative to the Islamist regime that is a menace to the Iranian people, as I said, and to many people in the region. Russia, can I can I add yes, what just absolutely. one or two Number, lines? Yes, and I also want to hear your thoughts on what you think or who you think the opposition is and how they can, um, you know, how they can do anything in under mm -hmm. in these circumstances. Well, as as uh, as Arash said, there there is a a broad um, 
really array of opponents to the Islamic Republic. It's it's really been uh, a masterclass by the Islamic Republic in oppressing uh, and dispossessing nearly every strata of society. Uh, obviously, uh, some of its most more visible ways, you know, Iran is a gender uh, gender apartheid state. Uh, in my view, I think that Iranian women inside the country, by and large, would argue that. Um, you know, women are, are are legally worth half of men, and that has a it's, you know variety of ways that 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 shows up in society. Uh, to workers, low paid workers, um, to uh, LGBTQ community, to religious minorities, you know, uh, uh, to those who were against the regime from its very first day. So the the regime has done a very good job of of making enemies for itself. Unfortunately, historically, those enemies of the regime have often found enemies in one another as opposed to focusing on their main enemy. Um, now, there have been those from the very beginning who have, have pushed the concept of unity and the importance of unity amongst Iran's secular democratic forces. Um, uh, they just have not been listened to, unfortunately. But I do think not only is now a, a golden opportunity, but we're already seeing very positive steps in that direction. Now, you asked uh, Russia, who is the opposition? I'll give my own personal view here that I would, I would say the vast majority of Iranians find themselves represented by some group or, or political strand in what I would call the mainstream nationalist opposition. And, and I think there are sort of three red lines uh, outside of which you know, are sort of the margins of, of society and inside which we may have vast political differences and disagreements, but most people find themselves inside. Um, the three red lines, first... Uh, the, the MEK, the Mujahideen, I think you probably know about them. Uh, they are extremely well organized, they're extremely well funded. They allied themselves with Saddam Hussein when Saddam Hussein invaded um, Iran. Uh, they were also very big proponents of the Islamic Revolution. So for those two, those two reasons, they're not very popular at all inside Iran, but they are very well organized and they show themselves in the international stage very well. Um, two, uh, separatists. So those who would advocate changing Iran's borders and 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 violating Iran's territorial integrity and making basically some sort of ethno uh, states out of Iranian provinces. Um, and, and finally, those who still attach themselves to the regime. So those who do not take the step to say this regime must go for there to be true democracy. Anyone who's not on the other side of those red lines, in my view, is part of what I would again call the, the nationalist mainstream opposition. And, and within that, you have a, a very broad array of people. You have monarchists, you have Republicans, you have socialists, you have communists, you have conservatives, you have everything under the sun. Um, and I think that there is a, a real opportunity for a coalition of those forces if they agree to a few things. If they say, first of all, the differences that we have, for example, what the future uh, form of Iran's government will be, if it will be a monarchy or, or a republic or whatever – we don't discuss that now. In fact, we put that to the Constitutional Assembly, the Constituent Assembly. The people of Iran will decide that in the future uh, and all of their similar questions. But right now we have one enemy, and that's the Islamic Republic, because that is the enemy of Iran. And I think that, again, in this No to Islamic Republic campaign, you see that. In fact, two weeks ago, there was a virtual gathering of representatives of not all, but many of these sort of strains that I just described um, in really a historic gathering of these forces. You had Republicans sitting next to monarchists, sitting next to communists, sitting next to conservatives uh, for the very first time. I think that you'll continue to see more and more of that. And one name that stands out and uh, I, you know, 
maybe people disagree, disagree with with him. I don't I don't know why, but on a, on a just purely what we see inside the country, the person whose name you hear chanted in the streets is Reza Pahlavi, who is who is the son of the former Shah and who's been obviously a, a day one opponent of the Islamic Republic. I um, mean, he's been one of these individuals who has been preaching for years the importance of unity and bringing forces together and and saying that our our debate today is not the future form of the state it is just freeing iran and then we get to all those issues uh and so i think that this note to islamic republic campaign combined with sort of the the moral leadership i would call of, of figures like reza pahlavi can really provide for a united coalition again we won't agree on everything i shouldn't say we I'm, i don't really consider myself a sort of a political actor in this stage but uh the iranian opposition will not agree on everything uh, but if uh, they can Cameron, agree on some very basic principles, we can, we can get much closer to getting rid of this regime. Uh, yeah, I just uh, you said that they were recently united. What, uh, just elaborate on that. When were they recently? Yeah, sure. So, so there there was uh, two weeks ago. Uh, there was a summit. It was under the banner of this "No to the Islamic Republic" campaign, and and, and I, th I think the event was called "No to the Islamic Republic." Yes to national solidarity. Uh, you know, boycott the election. This was this was pre the Islamic Republic's elections, um, and you had some very well-known figures there. You had uh, uh, Prince Reza Pahlavi, who I just mentioned. You had a very well-known women's act, uh, women's rights activist, Masih Ali Nejad. You had a very famous Iranian rapper, Shahi Najafi. You had the head of the Monarchist Party. You had the head of uh, uh, one of the main Republican parties. Um, you know, you had a, a, and you had people inside Iran uh, as well. You had leading activists inside the country uh, who play a critical role. For example, Fatima Seperi, who is is the wife, uh, the widow, I should say, of a martyr in the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, you have activists on the streets who obviously appeared uh, incognito to to prevent being arrested or killed. Um, so this is not an inside-outside, and that's another thing I think that is often. Uh, uh, improperly described about the Iranian opposition is that it, it's disconnected. In fact, now it's much more connected inside the country than ever has been. Um, and, and those people inside the country who are bravely, bravely active, they look to leaders outside. So this was a conference um, bringing a lot of those forces together. It, it was actually aired live on the BBC Persian and Iran International and beamed into the homes of, you know, millions, if not tens of millions of Iranians. Um, and they all in, in that session, you know, basically agreed that, look, we are here to talk about this one thing that we all agree on, no to this Islamic Republic, and and yes to solidarity. Um, and and it's, it's just the first step. Lots more has to be done, in my view, as sort of an, an impartial observer. Lots more has to be done. Um, but it, it, it was a remarkable first step, and it was truly historic because this opposition has been extremely, extremely divided. And let me just add this. It's not just because these groups have been unwilling to sit next to each other. That's part of it. Let, let's not forget or let's not have it be unsaid that it has been the Islamic Republic's main, if not one of its main goals, to weaken the opposition. It does this through uh, cyber campaigns, through intimidation, through actual assassination. We've had former prime ministers assassinated, former military generals, leading activists right here in Washington, D.C., all across Europe and Turkey. Even today, people are being killed. So it has been the regime's main objective. I would argue, to show a weak and ineffective opposition um, and to sow discord, just like the regime sows discord in the Middle East. Um, but now I think we're getting to a, to a place where these forces realize that for the sake of the country, if, if Iran is to continue to exist as a country before the Islamic Republic fully destroys it, they have to come together. And I think you're seeing that. Okay. Thank you for that, Cameron. I want to move on to the 
perhaps the elephant in the room, although we have many elephants when it comes to Iran, but let's talk about U.S.-Iran relations and the nuclear deal. Raisi, uh, uh, he's already publicly said that the U.S. had violated the 2015 nuclear agreement and that Iran's ballistic missile program is, quote, not up for negotiations. And he's already calling on President Biden to lift all sanctions and return to the agreement. What can we expect moving forward with U.S.-Iran relations and the nuclear deal? Uh, let's start with Arash. I think, um, number one, let me just add that I agree with the, much of what Kamran said, and I think we have a lot of disagreements in Iran. So the fact that him and I can sort of agree on these broad terms shows that you really can have a broad, tent Iranian opposition. Um, on the on on the question of uh, on the question that you asked about Iran-U.S. relations, I believe it is possible for a deal to be reached in Vienna before Raisi takes uh, takes the reins in August. This would be a general revamping of the JCPOA. Um, it will um, it will basically lift many of the sanctions on Iran, um, and uh, you know it would also scale back Iranian nuclear. Uh, activities. It is possible, I think, based on my reading and speaking to different diplomats and different camps. Now, there are some new developments that are interesting. For example, as you know, the Israeli government under the new Prime Minister Naftali Bennett um, has changed the policy from the Netanyahu time uh, that are, uh, ironically might actually be more useful against the Iran deal, which Netanyahu also opposed. But uh, Bennett basically has started talking more directly to Americans about details of the JCPOA, trying to be a more sort of um, constructive actor on this issue. I not just uh, oppose the negotiations and in their entirety, but talk about their details, which Netanyahu had a policy of not doing. Um, so it's interesting. We have to see what effect that will have uh, on the talks they, uh, that United States working more closely with uh, with Americans, uh, with, with Israelis on this issue. Um, but uh, yes, I believe it's possible for a deal to be reached before uh, before Raisi takes the reins. But that's just the beginning, of course. Um, the question of you know what happens after uh, it will be interesting to watch. Um, Biden administration is desperately wants to sort of get out of the Middle East, but um, I think it can be a short-sighted policy because, of course, as Obama also found out, um, is wanting to want to get out, but then um, U.S. has so many links and so many connections with the allies, with its allies in the region, that um, um, that it's not just a matter of reducing its military footprint or leaving. You know, the, the Iranian actions will have to face. So, yeah, short answer is I think it's very possible that there would be a nuclear deal. It, it will lift some sanctions in Iran, um, but the other a sticking points in this relationship will continue to be a problem. Okay, Cameron, I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, is it a good idea, do you think, from the perspective of uh, the average Iranian, for the Islamic Republic to uh, go back to the uh, nuclear deal and to reestablish relations with Washington or not? I, I, I look at this from, from two perspectives. First and foremost, uh, if I can take in a slightly different direction, uh, as an American, and then I'll go back as, as an Iranian-American, and you know, someone who's sort of in touch with people inside the country and, and, and try to accurately uh, reflect briefly how they look at things. As an American, I don't think it makes sense uh, to go back. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm quite shocked, to be honest with you. Uh, the, um, the real, it seems, obsession if I can use that word, that the Biden administration has with returning to the JCPOA. It, it, it's almost a, a religious obsession at this point. Um, 
it's 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 strange because nearly half if not more of 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 many of the the quote-unquote benefits that the united states got from this jcpoa are now expired just as a matter of time and that's a very simple fact unless things are added on or or timelines are are extended um uh, so so it simply doesn't make sense in that regard um secondly from as an american perspective uh Javod Zarif said this when he was, he's still foreign minister. Uh, uh, Ali Khamenei has said this. Uh, Mr. Raisi has also said this, um, that there will be no additional deals. There will be no additional negotiations. So it's, it's very strange for me that first the Obama administration and then the Biden administration have used this argument that the JCPOA is sort of the first stop on multiple stops of diplomacy with this regime uh, to end some of its duplicitous uh, and really destabilizing behavior, for example, in the region, its ballistic missile program, eventually addressing its domestic human rights abuses. Um, That was what we were told as Americans. Um, That's just not the case. Uh, The Islamic Republic has itself said that. So strategically, it doesn't make sense from an American perspective. Uh, From an Iranian perspective, Effectively, what will happen if these sanctions, particularly sanctions on critical industries, for example, the oil industry, the banking industry, the insurance industry, are 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 removed, um, that will be a boon to the Islamic Republic. It will it will free up uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions, if not tens of billions of dollars uh, to a regime uh, that will not use it for uh, the improvement of the people's welfare. So, from an Iranian perspective, on the street. Uh, I think their view by and large is whatever cash is released will not come to their table. Maybe there's some small marginal uh, benefit. Uh, Maybe, for example, in in the currency exchange rate, that will soften things. Um, But the vast majority of of this boon will go to the regime, and and that will be uh, spent on a domestic uh, repression apparatus to to quell and crush popular protests that will be used uh, for uh, international terrorism, that will be used for regional destabilization uh, and terrorism. And we go back to the chance that, that I, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, leave Gaza alone and, and pay attention to Iran. And so I think the Iranian people understand that whatever benefit comes of this uh, will not be helping them. And in fact, they view it um, as really a lifeline uh, being thrown to the Islamic Republic at a time when it's incredibly weak, perhaps more weak than it's ever been. And I think Iranians are very shocked. And this is not something you have to take my word on. I mean, for example, you can add, there was a letter written by uh, people inside prison and house arrest, political uh, dissidents inside the country asking uh, that, that, for example, uh, these sanctions uh, not be removed, asking for um, uh, some, not in this particular, but others ask for more sanctions, others ask for more pressure on the Islamic Republic and not to throw them a lifeline. Um, I think it's important to note that that nobody ever wants sanctions. I, I don't sit here in Washington and say, gosh, I really wish that Iranians were sanctioned more. Sanctions are a policy reaction to an action taken by another state. And in this case, uh, it's a policy reaction to four decades of terrorism, four decades of, of piracy, four decades of criminality. Um, what I would argue um, is that what U.S. needs to take into account as a policy measure is not just maximum pressure. You can't just sanction uh, you know, something into the ground. You need maximum support. You need help for the Iranian people. You need help for Iranian laborers. You need internet access. So that's what we here in Washington advocate for, not just sanctions all day long, because that, that's not going to get us anywhere. Uh, we really need a more comprehensive Iran policy. In my view, it's it's been too long, too focused on sanctions uh, on the one side. And on the other side, it's been too long, too focused on simply removing sanctions and you know writing a, a blank check to the Islamic Republic. 
thank you for that, Cameron. Uh, Arash, do you have any last thoughts on sanctions or any alternative to sanctions that may, you know, uh, help stabilize the region or uh, undermine or bolster the regime or help the Iranian people? Let's hear your thoughts. Look, I guess on Iran and other country, I don't think uh, cutting economic ties with the country are, are good news. I don't think they, they lead to a weakening of civil society in that country. And they, um, um, you know, they're, they're not good news, in my opinion. Um, but I do agree with support for civil society in Iran and, uh, you know, support for civil society in Iran, support for different sort of uh, democratizing initiatives in Iran in different ways. Um, and so my my position um, that is uh, you know um, that is perhaps a bit unorthodox, uh, unfortunately, uh, because you know debates get polarized in Iran in one way or the other. I think you actually need I think lessening of I think diplomatic diplomatic openings to Iran and um, lessening of of sanctions um, can actually go hand in hand with support for civil society and not forgetting the nature of the foe. I think that's the important. I think the Obama administration at some point. Um, really, uh, you know, some at least in the Obama administration really deluded themselves into believing that, oh, you know, the Islamic Republic maybe can be sort of uh, ch changed or managed or, uh, you know, uh, or turned into something that it is not. Um, I think you you shouldn't have that. Um, so, you know, like my friend Karim Sajjadpour has a, has a great article in The Atlantic. He also had a good article on, on sort of uh, on Raisi, but an article before about how to win the Cold War against Iran, I think it's called in The Atlantic, uh, where he shows somehow you can have a sort of a combined approach. Uh, he um, engage when you need to on, on, on many issues when it comes to the policy of the West um, and also support the uh, democratizing, uh, democratizing and sort of civil society initiatives, I mean, uh, you know, on the other hand. And of course, and the last word I'd say is that when it comes to Iranian progressives and Iranian opposition, um, as we discussed earlier, um, our policy should be independent of, of, you know, what the United States does for its own national interests. We should fight against this regime um, and for support of now workers' strikes that have been going on in Iran right now. They're increasing in the last few weeks and other civil society actions against this government because whoever comes to Washington and other countries, ultimately, um, they'll, they're will they working on the basis of American uh, national interest. And we should, we should, the Iranian progressives should fight for our own uh, national interest, which is a free, democratic, sovereign Iran that is also in peace uh, with its neighbors and ends the disastrous policies of the Islamic Republic. Thank you for that, Arash. The ongoing conversation about sanctions and bolstering civil society. I think this is a good place for us to wrap up. We'll certainly keep an eye on how the story develops in the coming weeks and months, and perhaps we'll have you both again. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Cameron Kensarimia from Washington, D.C., and Arash Azizi from New York City. You can read Arash's essay in Nuance magazine, aptly titled, How Iran's Hanging Judge Became President. And thanks to our viewers and listeners out there for joining us today. Tune in next time for another episode of New Lines Podcast. Thank you, Russia. Thank, Thank you, you so much.